this is Coffee Number 5. I'm your host, Lara Schmoisman. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Coffee Number 5. You know, when I used to teach at Cal Poly Pomona, um, my first class always was the same. I will ask my students, which, of course, first class, they weren't prepared to to do anything. So I will give them a piece of paper and a pen, and I will ask them the person to the right or left, I don't remember, just to give them a theme, a theme for an invitation. It could be a baby shower, a birthday party, a bachelorette party, and they had to draw that invitation. I, of course, didn't care about the design too much or what they were doing uh, because we were going to analyze it. And what normally happened is that either someone will do a beautiful invitation and they will put so much detail in the design, but information will be there. Nobody will know where the party was or what kind of party it was or where it was or so the information was missing. All people would put the information on not having the design. So I realized by doing that exercise, how important is combining the two worlds. Everyone who knows me know that for me, design needs to be superb, always need to be raising the bar. And I'm not saying that always needs to be the same style. I mean, we always need to be cater to our audience. But at the same time, the elements of design need to be there. The same that when we write, we need to use our commas, we need to use our dots, our all the elements of writing, we design the same things happen. So today I invited David, uh, Debbie Millman and Debbie, she's gonna introduce herself because she did so much and I'm gonna ask her to introduce herself. Welcome to coffee number five. Thank you, Laura. It's very nice to be here. David, tell us a little more about your background, your books. I mean, you you did so much design related that I'm embarrassed just to say what the little I did. Oh, please. <laughs> well, I'm a designer and I have designed, I've worked on the design of um, over 200 of the world's biggest brands, including Burger King and 7-Up and Hershey's and Haagen-Dazs and Tropicana and lots and lots of other brands in in that realm. I am an educator and I created the world's first master's program in branding, which is where I'm calling from, the studio here at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. I am the author of six books, about to be seven. One is, the newest one is coming out February 22nd. It's called Uh, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People. And it's uh, some of my best interviews from my long-running podcast, 17 Years Now, uh, which is called Design Matters. I'm also the editorial director of printmag.com and um, on the board of the Joyful Heart Foundation and Performance Space New York. Wow, that's a lot. You did a lot on your career. And... Okay, and probably, I mean, you're teaching too, and you have similar experiences as I do. So, and I feel like a lot of people are coming into design not to know what to expect to get into a design career. What are those things that you see that those expectations don't meet the reality? Well, I think that designers need to understand that talent now is sort of 
I equate it with um, something that's called operational excellence, that if somebody has a degree in design, anybody that they're interviewing with expects that they're going to know how to design and be a good designer. Um, design is a very subjective discipline. Uh, the very things that some people love and adore are the exact same things that other people might be outraged by. So it's important that a designer be able to talk about their work, to be able to talk about what the strategy is that they've used to create the work and not just something that they did because they like a specific typeface or a specific color palette. You need to be able to show why the design is able to accomplish the client's goals and how the designer went about doing that. I call so I that that's really critical. Yes, I always call that content with intention. Yeah. Something that I call, I talk to my designers and always our audience to create any piece of content that we do, even if it's written and also when it's designed, it needs to have an intention. And I have a system that is called IEMA, that it's called that it needs to be informative, entertaining, memorable, and actionable. Mm -hmm. Yep, there needs to be a benefit to this specific work that is created. Very deliberate intent. Exactly. And I found that there are a lot of designers, first of all, that the design, I understand that they are creative people, that we all have that creativity, but we need to use that creativity and the intention of the final goal. And I feel that many times designers, in, in order to be creative, they're for, forgetting the goal of the piece that they're creating. Yeah. It becomes very internally driven about what they like as opposed to externally driven, which is what will connect best with the audience. Exactly. And now in this few or many years, in the last many years, we have the digital world. We mm -hmm. created a whole new set of skills. Yeah. And can you tell us a little more how I explain how traditional design can transform into digital and what designers need to be looking for? Because it's not the same to design a packaging that to design a landing page or design an email. Yeah, I mean, all of these things are skill-based that you can't just translate one discipline into another in the same way that if you play the violin, that automatically means you can play the cello or that you could play the piano or that you can play a trombone. There are different skills to all of these different instruments in the same way that there are different skills to all of these disciplines. So it's really a, a matter of training and understanding the best practices uh, and the rules of the game, so to speak, for every discipline. Um, in as much as I'm a brand designer, I would never in a million years say that I am also a digital designer because they're completely different skill sets and somebody else has an expertise in digital that I might have in branding. Yeah, I noticed lately that uh, it's a trend that people call themselves UI designers mm -hmm. just because they learn how to use those apps that basically the only thing you can do is to put a little color here and there the ux is there already well then they're not ux designers <laughs> exactly I, that, that was my point yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you from a from a, a college and there are master's degrees in interaction design and computer arts and you know i i can't even imagine that somebody would think that they well, are 
I do why designers without that kind of background. Thank you very, very much because I always think the same thing. And I cannot believe that someone say I'm a graphic designer because I work in Canva. I just, uh, that's not, I mean, being a graphic designer, you need a lot of education. It's more than using the tools of Photoshop or Illustrator. It's, oh, or, it's, yeah. it's so much more that you need to understand. You need to understand the psychology, the sociology, to understand who your client and who is your target audience and the psychology of color and fonts. I love the psychology. Well, not of just fonts. that, but behavioral psychology, especially okay. if you're working in UI or UX, where you really have to understand how people navigate space and and the psychology of finance to be able to know what it will take to get somebody to actually click through to the cart and buy it. So absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so my question is here, how can you know? I mean, because I feel like a lot of people want to be getting to the design world and the digital design world and how they can get the skills that it requires to be working for social, but also to create landing pages. I think it's about education. And if, if somebody can afford to go to a four-year college or a two-year college, there are lots of certificate programs. There are some free programs. I know Wix has a summer intensive that people can apply to that's completely free. Um, there are a lot of classes in general assembly. There are classes within AIGA. I think that there's lots of ways that people can learn if they can't take a more traditional education path through a college or a university. So I don't think it's about that, nor do I think it should be. I think it should, people can have any number of ways into learning. Yeah. I also, I see that a lot of my clients in the agency, they come to me and they come with expectations on, I mean, for me, it's something that is super important for any client to have is a brand guide. That's I'm sorry, a brand what? Guide. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that takes a lot of talent. Not just anybody can write a brand guide. They're so complicated and have so much um, compressed information in them. So there's a really good example of something that you need to learn how to do. Exactly. But at least you need to know the basics of your brand. You cannot say, here's my logo. No, that no, 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 no. It's way more than that. If to write a really compelling brand guideline, you need to know more than just the basics. You need to know the DNA of the brand in of order course. for a brand guideline to be meaningful and compelling. Okay. But I see that many of my clients or people say, oh, I have a logo. No, no, that's not a brand guide. Right. A brand guide needs to be a lot more compelling. It needs to tell you the story of the brand. It needs to tell you where the brand is going and what are the elements in design that we're going to be, be using in order to achieve those goals. Yeah. So what are the elements that for you are essential to have in a brand guide? Everything that you just said. Everything that you just said, um, an understanding of why the brand redesign was necessary, an understanding of the strategic intent of the brand, an understanding of where the brand is today and where you want to go tomorrow with this new identity, a uh, real reason for being, as well as all the tactical elements of colors, typography, use in all mediums. So, you know, I've, I've worked on brand guidelines that are 12 pages. I've worked on brand guidelines that are 900 pages. <laughs> There's so many different ways you can approach uh, Absolutely. And it's something that I always say to my clients, and I ask these questions when I do 
a brand guide for them is how what do you see your brand what's your need of a brand guide because right. oh, be- is why why are you doing this why do you need to make this what is the purpose of doing this Yes, because it's not the same for someone who's got a restaurant and it's one location that someone who wants to franchise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's completely different. So you need to know what are your needs as a business. If later on you need to expand, well, you can always expand on a brand guide, but you need to have a solid base. The same that is solid, uh, the colors. And also I want to talk to you about something that is really important. And I found that very few people know about this and it's the law of accessibility. Mm, Yes. It's fundamental in these years, in this time and age. Mostly I work in the beauty, fashion and wellness industry. And it's fundamental to be um, working with this law in mind. Yeah. And many people don't realize that this affects design. And I know most of the designers don't know about this law. Well, I think that it's great that you're telling them because it's critical. It's it's a table stakes now. There, there has to be an accessibility embedded in the brand experience. Otherwise, you're eliminating an entire population of people that are, are really important to having um a sense of inclusion absolutely can you explain our audience from this the design point of view how accessibility affects the designs or what we need to what elements we need to keep in mind in order to create an accessible design well i think it really depends on which medium you're talking about Absolutely. talking about digital then you're talking about people that might not uh, that might be sight challenged, being able to listen to what is on the screen. If it's people that are hearing impaired, then it might be something that has descriptions of what is yeah. playing. If it's in the market, then you have to think about gender. You have to think about um, disability or limited abilities. So it's really a matter of thinking about who are the various audiences that I'm talking to and and talking with and being able to reach them no matter what their circumstance might be. Yeah, absolutely. And from the design standpoint, I mean, I realized that a lot of people have beautiful palettes, but they never take in consideration this accessibility and how something that uh, for digital is super important is see that the colors, they have certain amount of contracts, uh, contrast and they will pass accessibility. So when you choose a color palette, you need to keep in mind all those restrictions that you might have. Exactly. Because at the end of the day, there are limitations that we will have. And like, for example, you cannot have a very pale color and then have white. It might look beautiful, but it won't pass accessibility. Right. But also you have to also take into account what different colors might mean in different cultures. In some cultures, it's virginal. In other, uh, in other cultures, it's funereal. So those yeah. are also important um, things to consider. Absolutely. Um, okay. So I want to ask you this question that I ask absolutely everyone who comes to the podcast. And I know I've been around for a long time and I learned that I learn a lot from mistakes too. So many times mistakes teach us bigger lessons professionally than things that we did right. Because mm-hmm. when you need to do something 
again, you do it even faster and better many times. So can you tell us that story, that experience that taught you a lot? Um, well, I think that one of the biggest lessons that I've learned, I learned from one of my podcast guests, it was actually after the podcast taping was finished, but it's, it's something that I wish had been captured. So I talk about it a lot now instead. Um, it was with Danny Shapiro, the writer, and she came into my office, this office after the taping. And we were talking and she noticed a big stack of books on my desk. Uh, about confidence. There had been a whole slew of books that had come out about confidence at that particular time. And for me, at that point, it felt like confidence was the holy grail. People are always looking for confidence. When I feel this way, I'll do this. When I feel more confident, I'll do that. And she looked at the stack of books and felt that um, she very, very candidly stated that she thought that confidence was overrated. And I'm like, what? It's like the holy grail for me. How is it overrated? And she said, well, I think that really confident people can often be kind of obnoxious. And what I think is more important than confidence is courage, courage to step into the unknown before you attempt something, because that's when you really need to be brave to take a chance. And I thought that was really brilliant, that courage was more important than confidence. And I spent a lot of time thinking about what the definition of confidence could be in, in, that, in, in that context. And I think that ultimately what I've come to realize is confidence is really just the successful repetition of any endeavor that we can't get confidence. You don't go to a supermarket and get confidence off a shelf as much as we might think that hair color or a pair of shoes or whatever will give it to us. It's only temporary. Um, instead, uh, that's, that's beautiful. And also because confidence, you can be confident in this part of your life and not in this part of your life. Yeah. So the more you do something, you really need courage to step into the attempt to do something for the first time, because humans aren't born really knowing how to do anything from a, from a voluntary point of view without learning. Um, we can breathe and we can digest and so forth, but those are things we don't will ourselves to do. They happen instinctually and they happen in, in our bodies without our command. All the things that we are trying to make of ourselves with our lives, we have to learn how to do. And, and why anybody would think that mastery is any different um, is something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and, and mulling over. That's great. And thank you so much for sharing that. Now we're going to be thinking about that too. And I hopefully I, I'm going to be able to share it with uh, others. And we need to thank Danny Shapiro for this. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here at Coffee Number Five. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And to everyone else, I will see you next week. Ciao, ciao. Thank you. It was so good to have you here today. See you next time. Catch you on the flip side. Ciao, ciao.